Part six of Common Sense by Thomas Paine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part six Appendix. Since the publication of the first edition of this pamphlet, or rather on the same day on which it came out, the King's Speech made its appearance in this city. Had the spirit of prophecy directed the birth of this production, it could not have brought it forth at a more seasonable juncture or a more necessary time. The bloody-mindedness of the one showed the necessity of pursuing the doctrine of the other. Men read by way of revenge, and this speech, instead of terrifying, prepared a way for the manly principles of independence. Ceremony, or even silence, from whatever motive they may arise, have a hurtful tendency when they give the least degree of countenance to base and wicked performances. Wherefore, if this maxim be admitted, it naturally follows that the king's speech as being a piece of finished villainy deserved, and still deserves, a general execration both by the Congress and the people. Yet, as the domestic tranquillity of a nation depends greatly on the chastity of what may properly be called national manners, it is often better to pass some things over in silent disdain than to make use of such new methods of dislike as might introduce the least innovation on that guardian of our peace and safety. And perhaps it is chiefly owing to this prudent delicacy that the king's speech hath not, before now, suffered a public execution. The speech, if it may be called one, is nothing better than a willful, audacious libel against the truth, the common good, and the existence of mankind, and is a formal and pompous method of offering up human sacrifices to the pride of tyrants. But this general massacre of mankind is one of the privileges and the certain consequence of kings, for as nature knows them not, they know not her, and although they are beings of our own creating, they know not us, and are become the gods of their creators. The speech hath one good quality, which is, that it is not calculated to deceive, neither can we, even if we would, be deceived by it. Brutality and tyranny appear on the face of it. It leaves us at no loss. And every line convinces, even in the moment of reading, that he who hunts the woods for prey, the naked and untutored Indian, is less a savage than the King of Britain. Sir John Darrymple, the putative father of a whining Jesuitical piece, fallaciously called the address of the people of England to the inhabitants of America, hath perhaps, from a vain supposition that the people here were to be frightened at the pomp and description of a king, given, though very unwisely on his part, the real character of the present one. But, says this writer, if you are inclined to pay compliments to an administration which we do not complain of, meaning the Marquis of Rockingham's at the repeal of the Stamp Act, it is very unfair in you to withhold them from that prince by whose nod alone they were permitted to do anything. This is Toryism with a witness, 
Here is idolatry even without a mask. And he who can calmly hear and digest such doctrine hath forfeited his claim to rationality, an apostate from the order of manhood, and ought to be considered as one who hath not only given up the proper dignity of man, but sunk himself beneath the rank of animals, and contemptibly crawl through the world like a worm. However, it matters very little now what the King of England either says or does. He hath wickedly broken through every moral and human obligation, trampled nature and conscience beneath his feet, and by a steady and constitutional spirit of insolence and cruelty procured for himself an universal hatred. It is now the interest of America to provide for herself. She hath already a large and young family, whom it is more her duty to take care of than to be granting away her property to support a power who has become a reproach to the names of men and Christians, ye whose office it is to watch over the morals of a nation, of whatsoever sect or denomination ye are of, as well as ye who are more immediately the guardians of the public liberty, if ye wish to preserve your native country uncontaminated by European corruption, ye must in secret wish a separation. But leaving the moral part to private reflection, I shall chiefly confine my further remarks to the following heads. First, that it is the interest of America to be separated from Britain. Secondly, which is the easiest and most practicable plan, reconciliation or independence, with some occasional remarks. In support of the first, I could, if I judged it proper, produce the opinion of some of the ablest and most experienced men on this continent, and whose sentiments on that head are not yet publicly known. It is, in reality, a self-evident position, for no nation in a state of foreign dependence limited in its commerce and cramped and fettered in its legislative powers, can ever arrive at any material eminence. America doth not yet know what opulence is, and although the progress which she hath made stands unparalleled in the history of other nations, it is but childhood compared with what she would be capable of arriving at, had she, as she ought to have, the legislative powers in her own hands. England is, at this time, proudly coveting what would do her no good were she to accomplish it, and the continent hesitating on a matter which will be her final ruin if neglected. It is the commerce and not the conquest of America by which England is to be benefited, and that would, in a great measure, continue were the countries as independent of each other as France and Spain, because in many articles neither can go to a better market. But it is the independence of this country of Britain, or any other, which is now the main and only object worthy of contention, and which, like all other truths discovered by necessity, will appear clearer and stronger every day. First, because it will come to that one time or other. Secondly, because the longer it is delayed, the harder it will be to accomplish. I have frequently amused myself, both in public and private companies, 
with silently remarking the specious errors of those who speak without reflecting. And among the many which I have heard, the following seems the most general, viz., that had this rupture happened forty or fifty years hence, instead of now, the continent would have been more able to have shaken off the dependence, to which I reply that our military ability at this time arises from the experience gained in the last war, and which in forty or fifty years' time would have been totally extinct. The continent would not by that time have had a general or even a military officer left, and we or those who may succeed us would have been as ignorant of martial affairs as the ancient Indians. And this single position, closely attended to, will unanswerably prove that the present time is preferable to all others. The argument turns thus. At the conclusion of the last war, we had experience, but wanted numbers and forty or fifty years hence we should have numbers without experience. Wherefore the proper point of time must be some particular point between the two extremes, in which a sufficiency of the former remains, and a proper increase of the latter is obtained, and that point of time is the present time. The reader will pardon this digression, as it does not properly come under the head I first set out with, and to which I again return by the following position, viz. Should affairs be patched up with Britain, and she to remain the governing and sovereign power of America, which, as matters are now circumstanced, is giving up the point entirely, we shall deprive ourselves of the very means of sinking the debt we have or may contract. The value of the back lands, which some of the provinces are clandestinely deprived of, by the unjust extension of the limits of Canada, valued only at five pounds sterling per hundred acres, amounts to upwards of twenty-five millions Pennsylvania currency, and the quit-rents at one penny sterling per acre to two millions yearly. It is by the sale of those lands that the debt may be sunk without burden to any, and the quit-rent reserved thereon will always lessen, and in time will wholly support the yearly expense of government. It matters not how long the debt is in paying, so that the lands, when sold, be applied to the discharge of it, and for the execution of which the Congress for the time being will be the Continental Trustees. I proceed now to the second head, viz., which is the easiest and most practicable plan, reconciliation or independence, with some occasional remarks. He who takes nature for his guide is not easily beaten out of his argument, and on that ground I answer generally that independence, being a single simple line contained within ourselves, and reconciliation a matter exceedingly perplexed and complicated, and in which a treacherous, capricious court is to interfere, gives the answer without a doubt. The present state of America is truly alarming to every man who is capable of reflection. Without law, without government, without any other mode of power than what is founded on and granted by courtesy. 
held together by an unexampled concurrence of sentiment, which is nevertheless subject to change, and which every secret enemy is endeavoring to dissolve. Our present condition is legislation without law, wisdom without a plan, a constitution without a name, and, what is strangely astonishing, perfect independence contending for dependence. The instance is without a precedent, the case never existing before, and who can tell what may be the event? The property of no man is secure in the present unbraced system of things. The mind of the multitude is left at random, and, seeing no fixed object before them, they pursue, such as fancy or opinion starts. Nothing is criminal, there is no such thing as treason, wherefore everyone thinks himself at liberty to act as he pleases. The Tories dared not have assembled offensively, had they known that their lives, by that act, were forfeited to the laws of the state. A line of distinction should be drawn between English soldiers taken in battle and inhabitants of America taken in arms. The first are prisoners, but the latter traitors. The one forfeits his liberty, the other his head. Notwithstanding our wisdom, there is a visible feebleness in some of our proceedings which give encouragement to dissensions. The continental belt is too loosely buckled, and if something is not done in time it will be too late to do anything, and we shall fall into a state in which neither reconciliation nor independence will be practicable. The king and his worthless adherents are got at their old game of dividing the continent, and there are not wanting among us printers who will be busy in spreading specious falsehoods. The artful and hypocritical letter which appeared a few months ago in two of the New York papers, and likewise in two others, is an evidence that there are men who want either judgment or honesty. It is easy getting into holes and corners and talking of reconciliation, but do such men seriously consider how difficult the task is, and how dangerous it may prove should the continent divide thereon? Do they take within their view all the various orders of men whose situation and circumstances, as well as their own, are to be considered therein? Do they put themselves in the place of the sufferer whose all is already gone, and of the soldier who hath quitted all for the defence of his country? If their ill-judged moderation be suited to their own private situations only, regardless of others, the event will convince them that they are reckoning without their host. Put us, says some, on the footing we were on in sixty-three, to which I answer, the request is not now in the power of Britain to comply with, neither will she propose it. But, if it were, and even should be granted, I ask as a reasonable question, by what means is such a corrupt and faithless court to be kept to its engagements? Another Parliament, nay, even the present, may hereafter repeal the obligation, on the pretense of its being violently obtained, are unwisely granted, and in that case, where is our redress? No going to law with nations. 
cannon are the barristers of crowns, and the sword not of justice, but of war, decides the suit. To be on the footing of sixty-three, it is not sufficient that the laws only be put on the same state, but that our circumstances likewise be put on the same state, our burnt and destroyed towns repaired or built up, our private losses made good, our public debts, contracted for defense, discharged. Otherwise we shall be millions worse than we were at that enviable period. Such a request, had it been complied with a year ago, would have won the heart and soul of the continent, but now it is too late. The Rubicon is past. Besides, the taking up arms, merely to enforce the repeal of a pecuniary law, seems as unwarrantable by the divine law, and as repugnant to human feelings, as the taking up arms to enforce obedience thereto. The object on either side doth not justify the means, for the lives of men are too valuable to be cast away on such trifles. It is the violence which is done and threatened to our persons, the destruction of our property by an armed force, the invasion of our country by fire and sword, which conscientiously qualifies the use of arms. And the incident in which such a mode of defense became necessary, all subjection to Britain ought to have ceased, and the independence of America should have been considered as dating in era form and published by the first musket that was fired against her. This line is a line of consistency, neither drawn by caprice nor extended by ambition, but produced by a chain of events of which the colonies were not the authors. I shall conclude these remarks with the following timely and well-intended hints. We ought to reflect that there are three different ways by which an independency may hereafter be effected, and that one of these three will one day or other be the fate of America, viz., by the legal voice of the people in Congress, by a military power, or by a mob. It may not always happen that our soldiers are citizens, and the multitude a body of reasonable men. Virtue, as I have already remarked, is not hereditary, neither is it perpetual. Should an independency be brought about by the first of those means, we have every opportunity and every encouragement before us to form the noblest, purest constitution on the face of the earth. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. A situation similar to the present hath not happened since the days of Noah until now. The birthday of a new world is at hand, and a race of men, perhaps as numerous as all Europe contains, are to receive their portion of freedom from the event of a few months. The reflection is awful, and in this point of view, how trifling, how ridiculous, do the little paltry cavilings of a few weak or interested men appear when weighted against the business of a world. Should we neglect the present favorable and inviting period, and an independency be hereafter effected by any other means, we must charge the consequence to ourselves, or to those, rather, 
whose narrow and prejudiced souls are habitually opposing the measure without either inquiring or reflecting. There are reasons to be given in support of independence which men should rather privately think of than be publicly told of. We ought not now to be debating whether we shall be independent or not, but anxious to accomplish it on a firm, secure, and honorable basis, and uneasy, rather, that it is not yet began upon. Every day convinces us of its necessity. Even the Tories, if such beings yet remain among us, should, of all men, be the most solicitous to promote it, for, as the appointment of committees at first protected them from popular rage, so a wise and well-established form of government will be the only certain means of continuing it securely to them. Wherefore, if they have not virtue enough to be Whigs, they ought to have prudence enough to wish for independence. In short, independence is the only bond that can tie and keep us together. We shall then see our object, and our ears will be legally shut against the schemes of an intriguing as well as a cruel enemy. We shall then, too, be on a proper footing to treat with Britain, for there is reason to conclude that the pride of that court will be less hurt by treating with the American states for terms of peace than with those whom she dominates, rebellious subjects, for terms of accommodation. It is our delaying it that encourages her to hope for conquest, and our backwardness tends only to prolong the war. As we have, without any good effect therefrom, withheld our trade to obtain a redress of our grievances, let us now try the alternative, by independently redressing them ourselves, and then offering to open the trade. The mercantile and reasonable part in England will still be with us, because peace with trade is preferable to war without it and if this offer be not accepted other courts may be applied to on these grounds i rest the matter and as no offer hath yet been made to refute the doctrine contained in the former editions of this pamphlet it is a negative proof that either the doctrine cannot be refuted or that the party in favor of it are too numerous to be opposed. Wherefore, instead of gazing at each other with suspicion or doubtful curiosity, let each of us hold out to his neighbor the hearty hand of friendship, and unite in drawing a line which, like an act of oblivion, shall bury in forgetfulness every former dissension. Let the names of Whig and Tory be extinct, and let none other be heard among us than those of a good citizen, an open and resolute friend, and a virtuous supporter of the rights of mankind and of the free and independent states of America. To the representatives of the religious society of the people called Quakers, or to so many of them as were concerned in publishing the late piece entitled, quote, The Ancient Testimony and Principles of the People Called Quakers Renewed, with respect to the King and Government, and touching the commotions now prevailing in these and other parts of America, addressed to the people in general, close quote. The writer of this is one of those few 
who never dishonors religion either by ridiculing or cavilling at any denomination whatsoever. To God, and not to man, are all men accountable on the score of religion. Wherefore, this epistle is not so properly addressed to you as a religious, but as a political body, dabbling in matters which the professed quietude of your principles instruct you not to meddle with. As you have, without a proper authority for so doing, put yourselves in the place of the whole body of the Quakers, so the writer of this, in order to be on an equal rank with yourselves, is under the necessity of putting himself in the place of all those who approve the very writings and principles against which your testimony is directed. And he hath chosen this singular situation in order that you might discover in him that presumption of character which you cannot see in yourselves. For neither he nor you can have any claim or title to political representation. When men have departed from the right way, it is no wonder that they stumble and fall. And it is evident that the manner in which ye have managed your testimony, that politics, as a religious body of men, is not your proper walk. For however well adapted it might appear to you, it is nevertheless a jumble of good and bad put unwisely together, and the conclusion drawn therefrom both unnatural and unjust. The first two pages, and the whole doth not make four, we give you credit for, and expect the same civility from you, because the love and desire of peace is not confined to Quakerism. It is the natural as well the religious wish of all denominations of men. And on this ground, as men laboring to establish an independent constitution of our own, do we exceed all others in our hope, end, and aim. Our plan is peace for ever. We are tired of contention with Britain, and can see no real end to it but in a final separation. We act consistently, because for the sake of introducing an endless and uninterrupted peace, do we bear the evils and burdens of the present day. We are endeavoring, and will steadily continue to endeavor, to separate and dissolve a connection which hath already filled our land with blood, and which, while the name of it remains, will be the fatal cause of future mischiefs to both countries. We fight neither for revenge nor conquest, neither from pride nor passion. We are not insulting the world with our fleets and armies, nor ravaging the globe for plunder. Beneath the shade of our own vines are we attacked. In our own houses and on our own lands is the violence committed against us. We view our enemies in the character of highwaymen and housebreakers, and having no defense for ourselves in the civil law, are obliged to punish them by the military one, and apply the sword in the very case where you have before now applied the halter. Perhaps we feel for the ruined and insulted sufferers in all and every part of the continent, with a degree of tenderness which hath not yet made its way into some of your bosoms. But be ye sure that ye mistake not the cause and ground of your testimony. Call not coldness of soul religion, nor put the bigot in the place of the Christian. 
O ye partial ministers of your own acknowledged principles, if the bearing arms be sinful, the first going to war must be more so by all the difference between willful attack and unavoidable defense. Wherefore, if ye really preach from conscience, and mean not to make a political hobby-horse of your religion, convince the world thereof by proclaiming your doctrine to our enemies, for they likewise bear arms. Give us proof of your sincerity by publishing it at St. James, to the commanders-in-chief at Boston, to the admirals and captains who are piratically ravaging our coasts, and to all the murdering miscreants who are acting in authority under him whom ye profess to serve. Had ye the honest soul of Barclay, ye would preach repentance to your king. Ye would tell the royal wretch his sins, and warn him of eternal ruin. Ye would not spend your partial invectives upon the injured and the insulted alone, but, like faithful ministers, would cry aloud and spare none. Say not that ye are persecuted, neither endeavor to make us the authors of that reproach which ye are bringing upon yourselves, for we testify unto all men that we do not complain against you because ye are Quakers, but because ye pretend to be, and are not Quakers. Alas, it seems by the particular tendency of some part of your testimony, and other parts of your conduct, as if all sin were reduced to and comprehended in the act of bearing arms, and that by the people only. Ye appear to us to have mistaken party for conscience, because the general tenor of your actions wants uniformity, and it is exceedingly difficult to us to give credit to many of your pretended scruples, because we see them made by the same men who, in the very instant that they are exclaiming against the mammon of the world, are nevertheless hunting after it with a step as steady as time, and an appetite as keen as death. The quotation which ye have made from Proverbs in the third page of your testimony, that, quote, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him, close quote is very unwisely chosen on your part, because it amounts to a proof that the king's ways, whom ye are desirous of supporting, do not please the Lord, otherwise his reign would be in peace. I now proceed to the latter part of your testimony, and that for which all the foregoing seems only an introduction, viz. Quote, it hath ever been our judgment and principle, since we were called to profess the light of Christ Jesus, manifested in our consciences unto this day, that the setting up and putting down kings and governments is God's peculiar prerogative for causes best known to himself, and that it is not our business to have any hand or contrivance therein, nor to be busybodies above our station, much less to plot and contrive the ruin or overturn of any of them, but to pray for the king and safety of our nation and good of all men, that we may live a peaceable and quiet life in all godliness and honesty, under the government which God is pleased to set over us. If these are really your principles, why do ye not abide by them? 
why do ye not leave that which ye call God's work to be managed by himself? These very principles instruct you to wait with patience and humility for the event of all public measures, and to receive that event as the divine will towards you. Wherefore, what occasion is there for your political testimony if you fully believe what it contains? And the very publishing it proves that either ye do not believe what ye profess, or have not virtue enough to practice what ye believe. The principles of Quakerism have a direct tendency to make a man the quiet and inoffensive subject of any and every government which is set over him. And if the setting up and putting down of kings and governments is God's peculiar prerogative, he most certainly will not be robbed thereof by us. Wherefore, the principle itself leads you to approve of everything which ever happened or may happen to kings as being his work. Oliver Cromwell thanks you. Charles, then, died not by the hands of men, and should the present proud imitator of him come to the same untimely end, the writers and publishers of the testimony are bound, by the doctrine it contains, to applaud the fact. Kings are not taken away by miracles, neither are changes in governments brought about by any other means than such as are common and human, and such as we are now using. Even the dispersion of the Jews, though foretold by our Saviour, was affected by arms. Wherefore, as ye refuse to be the means on one side, you ought not to be meddlers on the other, but to wait the issue in silence, and unless ye can produce divine authority to prove that the Almighty who hath created and placed this new world at the greatest distance who could possibly stand east and west from every part of the old, doth nevertheless disapprove of its being independent of the corrupt and abandoned court of Britain, unless I say, ye can show this, how can ye, on the ground of your principles, justify the exciting and stirring up the people, quote, firmly to unite in the abhorrence of all such writings and measures, as evidence a desire and design to break off the happy connection we have hitherto enjoyed with the kingdom of Great Britain, and our just and necessary subordination to the king and those who are lawfully placed in authority under him. What a slap of the face is here! The men, who in the very paragraph before, have quietly and passively resigned up the ordering, altering, and disposal of kings and governments into the hands of God, are now recalling their principles, and putting in for a share of the business. Is it possible that the conclusion, which is here justly quoted, can any ways follow from their doctrine laid down? The inconsistency is too glaring not to be seen, the absurdity too great not to be laughed at, and such as could only have been made by those whose understandings were darkened by the narrow and crabby spirit of a despairing political party, for ye are not to be considered as the whole body of the Quakers, but only as a fractional and fractional part thereof. Here ends the examination of your testimony, which I call upon no man to abhor, 
as ye have done, but only to read and judge of fairly, to which I subjoin the following remark, quote, that the setting up and putting down of kings, close quote, most certainly mean the making him a king who is not yet so, and the making him no king who is already one. And pray, what hath this to do in the present case? We neither mean to set up nor to pull down, neither to make nor to unmake, but to have nothing to do with them. Wherefore your testimony, in whatever light it is viewed, serves only to dishonor your judgment, and for many other reasons had better have been let alone than published. First, because it tends to the decrease and reproach of all religion whatever, and is of the utmost danger to society to make it a party in political disputes. Secondly, because it exhibits a body of men, numbers of whom disavow the publishing political testimonies, as being concerned therein and approves thereof. Thirdly, because it hath a tendency to undo that continental harmony and friendship which yourselves, by your late liberal and charitable donations, hath lent a hand to establish, and the preservation of which is of the utmost consequence to us all. And here, without anger or resentment, I bid you farewell, sincerely wishing that as men and Christians ye may always fully and uninterruptedly enjoy every civil and religious right, and be, in your turn, the means of securing it to others but that the example which ye have unwisely set of mingling religion with politics may be disavowed and reprobated by every inhabitant of America. End of Part 6 End of Common Sense by Thomas Paine Read by Phil Chenevere